Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. We're going into the vault for an episode from June 1st, 2017, that was about the concept of neurosecurity. What happens when you have to take the concepts of cybersecurity and apply them to your brain and your nervous system? Yeah, this is a nice anxiety-inducing episode <laughs> about protecting your brain. And is this the one that we uh, we did a scanner skit at the stop at the, at the no, top of? No, I don't think so. Maybe that I was think that was one. a different episode. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I don't want to get everybody's hopes up about, but I'm sure there's some scanners references in this episode. Uh, I mean, this is a very creepy concept and it's not as far-fetched as you might think. In fact, I would say that we're, we're, we're creeping there every day. We, it's, we're getting closer and closer. I'd say the connections between our brains and the devices and the contents displayed on those devices are becoming ever more seamless. The tentacles are reaching into our skulls. It's, it's only a matter of time before you, you've got full-on security protocols for protecting your nervous system from hackers. All right. Well, let's go ahead and throw up those uh, neural firewalls and jump right in to this episode. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I got a question for you. Hit me. Have you ever wondered if it's possible to create a piece of digital information, like a computer file, a bit of computer code, a computer virus, that could literally kill or injure somebody? Oh, well, of course I have. I mean, having watched and enjoyed such films as The Ring, as Videodrome, <laughs> like just the idea of there being some sort of, in these cases, media, but we can easily extrapolate that to to digital media or just digital information. Yeah. Like you can't help but think, is there is there something like that that could exist that would have a devastating or even lethal effect on anyone who interacted with it? Yeah, video file, audio file, computer mm -hmm. program, something that comes out of the digital interface and actually harms you. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not hard to see how... You, you could harm somebody indirectly with something like that. One example would be a computer virus that takes down a lot of systems or causes widespread economic damage. Yeah, that's if, been happening since the 80s, as we'll discuss. Yeah, certainly. So widespread economic damage means people lose their jobs, mm -hmm. and statistically we know that that will indirectly lead to some number of deaths above the mean mortality rate. But I mean something more direct, obviously. I, you know, I'm talking about the cyborg ninja kind of stuff, but take away <laughs> the cyborg ninja. I'm not talking about robot assassins. Or just, leaked personal data. Like, that's been another big one, too. I've, right. I've seen accounts where people have said this individual is potentially suicidal over the leakage of uh, images, video, or personal information. Sure. That's the, the devastating effect of digital gossip. Yeah. But could a malicious hacker injure or assassinate somebody just with a digital file directly, a piece of computer code, uh, a video? Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, an increasingly important consideration, uh, to, you know, because we just look at all the things around us that are becoming connected to the Internet that, that you know, years ago I would have thought, why would I need my, uh, let's say, my thermostat right. to be connected to the Internet? It seems crazy. And yet here I am in the future, uh, especially during the cold months, I, I enjoyed waking up, grabbing my phone and adjusting the thermostat, warming up the house. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm thinking, is this a little crazy that this electric, you know, gas-powered fire in my home <laughs> is now controlled by a device that is connected to the internet and all the horrors of the internet 
uh, I, I end up just having to like stick, you know, push that out of my brain right. and just focus on the fact, ooh, I can, before I get out of bed, I can, I can make it a little warmer. Now, fortunately, there are limits to what your thermostat can do, right? right. You're not worried about some crazy kid on 4chan deciding that he wants to cook you alive and turning your house thermostat up to 500 degrees. Mm-hmm. But the more we think about a smart house, like I was, there was some horrible sci-fi movie that came out years and years ago, and it had a smart house that where the robot, you know, goes completely howl on everybody. Uh-huh. And it had like a Terminator arm that hangs from the ceiling and like travels around the house. Uh, I, always, I keep thinking back to that, the more interconnected our homes become. Uh, now that, you know, th- that whole idea of like your house becoming self-aware and killing you is one thing. But yeah, just the idea that all these things are connected at least uh, in, a, in, in a small way to everyone else in the world. It can be a little much. This was explored to great effect in the wonderful Stephen King movie, Maximum Overdrive. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Not, not such a great movie, but the premise is all our machines turn against us, right? Our consumer technology from trucks to household appliances start trying to kill us. I think in the movie it's aliens, right? I can't remember in the movie. In the book, I mean, the short story, rather, it was delightfully vague. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then, of course, Maximum Overdrive, the film, is its own experience. But I, I guarantee you there's got to be a script out there where someone has taken Maximum Overdrive, or at least Trucks, the original story, and upgraded it to the, you know, the so-called Internet of Things. Yeah, and the most obvious analogy from the movie is going to be autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. Autonomous vehicles, if... Have if they have the wrong security exploits, if people can manipulate them in the wrong ways, it's not hard at all to see how they can be deadly. Right. But I want to get even more insidious about devices that we personally hold in our hands and use to mediate our relationship with regular information like text and video and, you know, ideas. Mm-hmm. I've got an archived Wired Magazine article entitled Hackers Assault Epilepsy Patients Via Computer, and this is from March 2008. And what happened in this uh, incident is that somebody attacked an epilepsy support message board hosted by a group called the Epilepsy Foundation. And just to read a quote about what happened, quote, The incident, possibly the first computer attack to inflict physical harm on the victims, began Saturday, March 22nd, when attackers used a script to post hundreds of messages embedded with flashing animated GIFs. The attackers turned to a more effective tactic on Sunday, injecting JavaScript into some posts that redirected users' browsers to a page with a more complex image designed to trigger seizures in both photosensitive and pattern-sensitive epileptics. Uh, And then later in the article, they note, and this is worth noting, epilepsy affects about 50 million people worldwide, but only about 3% of those people are photosensitive, meaning you've often heard, you know, the old Pokemon story that flashing lights or flashing images can cause seizures in people with epilepsy. That is true for some people with epilepsy, but not all. So the risk here is not necessarily like a wide attack where you just end up hitting that small percentage of people who are affected, Mm -hmm. but what if you targeted it after a specific individual? And this has apparently happened now. We have this story from 2016 where there's an American journalist named Kurt Eichenwald who was known publicly to have photosensitive epilepsy. And during the 2016 election, so he's a political journalist, Mm -hmm. and of course, being a political journalist, you make enemies. And somebody who did not like his political coverage sent him a series of tweets with strobing light images, uh, and allegedly this 
caused a seizure. And so he is now a witness in a criminal prosecution against these digital attackers who attacked his physical body and were able to cause a physical injury with just information through an interface. It's interesting that it took place on Twitter, too, because, I mean, Twitter is known to be this place where, like a lot of the Internet, (laughs) uh, where, where people feel like they can be just as nasty and awful as they possibly can, yeah, uh, without any repercussions, and and here we see a, a situation where it ends up transcending merely the hurting of feelings or or psychological damage, but actual physical attack. Yeah, but while almost anybody can be psychologically harmed by information received through an interface, it's really difficult in general to physically harm somebody with information received through a standard, you know, digital media interface. It's really rare, like there is this one specific exploit in the brains of 3% of people or so who have epilepsy that means that certain types of light images projected on a screen can cause physical injury or it can trigger a seizure. Not everybody's epileptic. Not, not all people with epilepsy have this condition. So it's it's pretty rare, but... This is one neurological vulnerability to information-based weapons built right into some of our brains. Most of the time, for most people, the brain is very secure, right? It's hard to cause direct injury to somebody's body or steal their innermost secrets or do anything like that with information interfaces alone. But today we want to talk about how that state of affairs is very likely changing And it may be changing very soon because we want to talk about the coming age of neurosecurity. And the crazy thing here is that we're not talking about something that may come to pass. We're talking about, as you'll see as we we discuss this further, this is something that is definitely going to happen, that needs to happen. An inevitable next step. Yeah, unless basically uh, life or technological progress on Earth stops right now. Yeah. This is not There's, a singularity issue. Right. This is not. This is a very near future concern. Yes, and, and very, very plausible based on things that we already have today. Mm-hmm. So there are several different things that you could call neurosecurity. One thing would be using neuroscience principles in the general field of security, right? Uh, protecting your borders with fMRI brain scanners during border stop interrogations or something. Right. Picking up, say, for instance, if you could use this technology to pick up on uh, like extreme levels of nervous that might need to be inspected with additional questions. Sure. Or if it was even possible to tell that there was some sort of malicious intent. Or stocking up your TSA, the ranks of your TSA agents with scanners. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, like from the movie scanners. <laughs> you know, psych, psychic TSA. Okay. Yeah, it's basically scanner cops, the sequel to scanner cops. Oh my cops. God, you're right, scanner cops. Can you imagine the faces they'd make while you're standing in line? Would that make <laughs> flying better because it'd make it funnier or worse because it'd be even creepier? Uh, probably creepy. I'm guessing yeah. creepy. Sorry. Well, that's an interesting subject, but a subject for a different day. Today, we're talking about the security of our biological information systems, essentially applying computer cybersecurity principles to your brain and your nervous system. Now, you might be asking, that sounds ridiculous. Why would you ever talk about that? I mean, that's that's just such a weird sci-fi scenario. Nothing like that's ever going to happen, right? Right. I mean, to bring up scanners again, it just makes me think of the the first scanners movie that I, at the time, I thought ridiculous moment where the the scanners are interfacing with a computer Mm -hmm. with their brain. And that threw me completely out of the movie because I'm, I'm, 
because uh, I'm like, all right, you, you, I'm on board with brain to brain, the psychic connections, but uh-huh. you're throwing me off when I'm trying to imagine a brain to machine connection that's just purely based on psychic power. It does seem to violate the magic of the film, right? It right. gets it gets the mythology out of whack because there's a scene in the movie scanners where one of the scanners he gets on a telephone and he calls into a computer system and he reads the mind of the computer system. Yeah, and he wasn't even making fax machine noises with his mouth. <laughs> that, that I would have been on board with, but uh, yeah, not the way Cronenberg decided to, 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 uh, to display it. Michael Ironside could have sold those fax machine noises with his mouth, but not the mm-hmm. guy they had playing the hero. <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk about a particular study that uh, I'll get to a couple different times in this episode, but uh, actually it might be wrong to call it a study because it's really more an attempt at definitions, right? right? Trying to lay out what the concept of neurosecurity would be and what are some things we need to watch out for. And so this was published in 2009 in the journal Neurosurgical Focus. It's called Neurosecurity, Security and Privacy for Neural Devices from uh, Tamara Dinning, Yoki Matsuka, and Tadayoshi Kono. So the authors of this paper note that there are three primary goals in computer security. You've got confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So confidentiality means what you think it does. It means an attacker of your computer system should not be able to exploit the device to learn or expose private information. Standard example would be hacker steals your bank account info or your private emails or your private photos. Yeah, these are essentially externalizations of my private thoughts. Yeah. And I don't want anyone to have access to either. Exactly. Uh, Now, the next one was integrity. Integrity means that an attacker should not be able to, quote, change device settings or initiate unauthorized operations. In other words, the attacker should not be able to use this device, whatever it is, computer, cell phone, anything like that, should not be able to use it for their own purposes or change what the device does for the primary user. Mm -hmm. An example here might be that a hacker could take over your computer to turn it into a bot that's part of a botnet to have a DDoS attack against some website. Maybe they had a bad meal at Olive Garden. They want to take down the Olive Garden homepage. So they hijack your computer and make your computer one of many computers that bombard Olive Garden with, uh, with requests to load the page. Okay, and obviously I would not want that to happen to my brain either. No. <laughs> to, to change the settings on my brain and uh, ultimately change my behavior, change my motivations. Right. Like even if it's done in a very slapdash, awkward uh, way, like, you know, hands out of my brains. Exactly. So uh, the last one is availability. Availability means that the attacker should not be able to destroy or disable the device or do anything that would render it unavailable to the user. Classic example, hacker deletes all your files Mm -hmm. or alters the computer's boot procedure so that it won't load your operating system on startup and it just becomes useless. Likewise, I don't want anyone to strategically remove memories from my brain, to wipe my memories from Uh my brain, or to even temporarily uh, deactivate certain cognitive centers or networks in my brain. Yeah, now in these examples you're talking about, you're talking about sort of whole brain functionality. Yeah. But there could be dire consequences for much uh, lower stakes questions. Somebody might not necessarily be able to disable your entire brain, but in a minute we're going to talk about some particular types of neurotechnology. And in many of these cases, for example, just 
disabling your neurotechnology could have devastating consequences for you. They wouldn't have to be able to turn off your brain. They might just be able to turn off your neural implant at a time and place that would make you very vulnerable or could hurt you. I experienced something like this uh, the other weekend. I had to drive to a major phone service provider's um, brick-and-mortar store that I'd never been to before, and I had to do it without a functional phone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I managed. I ended up printing out the wrong directions uh-huh. on MapQuest or you know whatever map program I, uh, I used. It's amazing it how dependent we place. become. Yeah. So it, in a way, it was it was like a, a part of my brain was not functioning yeah. because the, uh, the the phone was not functioning. You have offloaded part of your traditional capabilities. Something maybe ten or fifteen years ago, you would have probably had better internal mechanisms for locating a store you needed to get to. Yeah. Uh, and now you've said, well, I don't have to worry about that anymore. That's in this peripheral that I use to supplement my brain. But if the peripheral breaks, you're you're messed up now. Yeah, and that is technology that exists, you know, quite literally, um, you know, arm's distance away from the brain. Right. But the thing is, we're seeing the technology creep increasingly closer to the brain. Yes. And then what happens when that stuff goes offline or becomes compromised? So to quote the authors of the study I mentioned, they say, quote, we define neurosecurity as the protection of confidentiality, integrity, and availability of neural devices from malicious parties with the goal of preserving the safety of a person's neural mechanisms, neural computation, and free will. Now, we're going to look directly at some of the neural technologies that might be vulnerable to security concerns like this. But before we do that, I think we should look more broadly at the idea of information security because if you're not all that familiar with the history of the internet, it might be kind of puzzling to you like why is the internet so horrible in terms of security? (laughs) We've got this global thing. uh, What would you even call it? Would you call it a technology? We've got this global information civilization that is just – Terrible. It is just terrible in terms of security. There, there is not an overarching strategy to keep everything safe. I keep thinking of it like um, the cat's cradle that you create with uh, with a length of string and your fingers, and you you know you interweave your fingers and you create a pattern. Yeah. So the the internet in this case, it's not the string, it's not the fingers. It couldn't exist without the string and the fingers. Uh-huh. But it's ultimately like that shape. Huh. You know. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a loose way I think about it. Well, maybe we should take a quick break, and when we get back, we can look at how the Internet ended up becoming so vulnerable to security concerns. All right, we're back. So, yes, how did the Internet end up becoming so vulnerable? Now, this is... Uh, on one T- hand, take me on a trip down <laughs> fear and paranoia memory lane, and I'll, I'll try and keep this this fun too. Uh, I okay. guess if, if you're a fan of like halt and catch fire, it's, it's kind of uh-huh. fun to think of it in, in those terms. But um, yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's an easy question to ask because we live in a day where we have ransomware attacks, identity theft, doxing, invasion of privacy. But on the other hand. So many of us were born into this system of the internet, yeah. or you know, or we. If you're like me, you entered into it during college, and mm-hmm. it's easy to just assume that the systems that run the world and the organizations that run the world have it figured out to some extent, you know? Mm-hmm. You expect the bank to be secure, 
Right. You, you expect some security uh, uh, to, to be in place there, some rather significant security options to be in place. So you would assume that the, the, the virtual bank would be much the same. Right. If you were to just find out that there are human-sized holes in the bank vault that keeps your money, mm-hmm. that would be rather surprising. Yeah. It's not surprising at all to find out that there are hacker-sized holes in the digital systems that protect your private information. I mean, how many times now have we had the story about— uh, some online retailer or maybe even physical retailer that you did business with and they have your credit card number, they got hacked, and now your information belongs to somebody out there and you have to get a new credit card or something like that. Yeah, and I think we can all relate to that kind of anxiety. Yeah. Now, I mentioned earlier that that so many of us were, were a number of our listeners here were born into the internet age. Yeah. So I'm going to try and put this in terms, like the origins of the internet in terms of something that maybe more of us could understand, but then not maybe not the younger people. <laughs> but for a number of you out there, I bet you can remember the day that your mom joined Facebook. Oh, yeah. So you remember the realization that, oh, crap, this, this internet thing, this, this really is for everyone. It's that horrible moment where something that you and your friends do online that you think of as not real life mm-hmm. comes crashing into real life. Yeah. And you realize like, oh, 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 this is connected to the same universe where I live. Yeah. Yeah, I remember there was like a sharp contrast, certainly between the MySpace age. Remember what it, it, it felt like to be on MySpace was totally different than the early stages of Facebook, which was in, in which was completely different from what Facebook would become. Yeah, in terms of you know just earlier models, just felt like oh, I'm just surrounded by like-minded people who share my my same sort of attitude on life and, and, and values about what's important. And granted, there's a, there was already a certain amount of bubble construction there. Uh-huh. But, uh, but yeah, we, we just, we, we had expectations about what this, this technology was and who this technology was for. And the same situation really applies to the internet as a whole. Mm, yeah. So its architects did not build it from the ground up as a global system for the masses, a cat's cradle weaved around the fingers of so many computers. No, they designed it as an online community for a few dozen researchers. It was a research project. Yeah. It was like, hey, we've got these computers at different in, uh, universities and institutions. What if we could link them together so they could trade information? Wouldn't yeah. that be weird? I, I don't think that it, maybe some people did, but it doesn't seem like generally they predicted that this would become a hub of commerce and recreation for everybody on the planet. Yeah, I mean, it's you can you can't help but compare it to say empires, right? Can yeah. you imagine you have uh, you know Genghis Khan and he's sitting around and. Uh, and uh, they're saying, "Hey, Genghis, what's up?" And he's saying, "Ah, oh, not much. I got this idea, though. I'm going to call it the Mongol Empire. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is how it's going to work. This is how we're going to incorporate trade, and the and this is how we're going to value different religions. Mm-hmm. And there was, whoa, 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 you haven't even none of this stuff is even conquered yet. What are you talking about? Right? Uh, like the, the people who who found the, the, these these major movements and organizations." Like, how often is is the complete structure baked into the original design? Oh, almost never. Each yeah. step is improvised. Yeah, you got to You make that. decisions about uh, design. You make design decisions on the fly as issues come up. And the internet was sort of the same way. Yeah, you got to leave it to Kubla to figure out the rest. <laughs> so... Um, there's a wonderful Washington Post article that that, uh, that goes into this in depth. It's titled, A Flaw in the Design. 
And, uh, and I'll include a link to this on the, the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh-huh. In the article, uh, the author speaks with such internet forefathers as MIT scientist David D. Clark, David H. Crocker, and Vinton G. Cerf. They point out that they thought they could simply exclude untrustworthy people. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. We'll just, we'll just keep the security risks off of the internet. Yeah. The, <laughs> so when they thought about security, and they did think a little bit about security, they thought about it mainly in terms of protecting the system from outside intruders or military threats. Wow. So there's a wonderful quote in this article from Surf, and he says, quote, We didn't focus on how you could wreck this system intentionally. You could argue with hindsight that we should have, but getting this thing to work at all was non-trivial. Yep. They so, dealt with problems as they arose, and yeah. the problems then were making it work. And now— this is going to have some very interesting parallels once we start talking about neurotechnology again. They also point out that at the time, there really wasn't much of value in the internet. Uh, the, uh, the analogy they make, again, to the bank, mm-hmm. people break into banks despite the security because, or they attempt to break in because there's money there, because there's something of value. Right. You wouldn't break into a bank vault or you know risk prison time for a bank vault that was full of, what, transcripts of messages back and forth between academics. Yeah, I mean, unless you're just in it for the pure artistry of it, but that rarely seems to be the case outside of, like, a Hollywood movie. But then, of course, in the early days of computers, you did start actually encountering security threats. Yeah, the big one that really changed everything was the 1988 Morris worm attack. It Mm. crashed thousands of machines, it caused millions of dollars in damage, and it helped usher in the multi-billion dollar computer security business. Bless the maker and his water. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at this point, the the party was over. Oh, by the way, interestingly enough, the article also points out that the the big idea behind the internet is at least partially attributed to American engineer Paul Barron, who worked for the RAND Corporation at the time. And he saw the need for a communication system that would function after a, a nuclear strike on the United States that would Whoa. help us uh, with aid efforts, help us preserve democratic governance, and even enable uh, a counterstrike, uh, all in order to help, quote, the survivors of the Holocaust to shuck their ashes and reconstruct the economy swiftly. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, th- th- bringing this Cold War mentality mm-hmm. to the Internet uh, – it's so crazy thinking about the way con- contextual frames – completely shift around the technologies that we create. Yeah, and the crazy thing, too, is that every time there's a headline about, uh, say, meddling in elections mm-hmm. with, with, the, you know, with, with various uh, online initiatives or hacking uh, initiatives or the, the recent ransomware attack, right. it makes me realize, well, this is, this is what cyber war looks like. This is, this yeah. is the shape of, of global cyber warfare. And it, you look back and here's this guy dreaming of the, the internet as this thing outside of war, this thing that's just a communication system to help us rebound from assaults by, uh, by various uh, states. But it's also, this is creating the internet in the context of thinking about international warfare, but thinking about it in terms of overt frontal warfare, mm-hmm. missile bombardments and troop advancements and all the traditional types of war people knew about not realizing that the internet would enable a state of constant covert war uh, between great powers that would just be constantly secretly or semi-secretly undermining one another. 
Yeah, and there would be kind of this gray area about how how you respond, how do you, how do you react, how does what are the rules of cyber warfare? And people still haven't figured that out. I yeah. think. So that Washington Post article is a great exploration of internet security history. But the the basic answer to our initial question is this: you know, why is the the internet? Why did the internet end up becoming so vulnerable? It's because the internet wasn't built to be secure. All security concerns are an add-on, an aftermarket addition, a patch. Security is always difficult, especially when it wasn't baked into the design. And it and, and with these systems that we're talking about, it almost never is. We see the same situation occurring. With, uh, with some of the gadgets and implants and proposed uh, uh, neural technologies we're going to discuss because the primary goal ends up to being what? To aid the patient. To, right. To somehow to achieve the goal of the device or the technology. Right. If you're designing neurotechnology to help uh, regain some lost functionality in somebody with a brain injury or a body injury or to cure some kind of neurodegenerative disease or at least offset its negative effects – Security, I mean, that's just such a far down the road concern. You're you're worried about fixing people's problems and helping their lives. That's mm-hmm. what you're worried about. And it's the same thing you talked about with the internet earlier that, you know, people were just wondering if they could make it work. Security is so far down the list of concerns. Yeah. Again, security becomes this add-on. It's this thing that you 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 end up implementing or worrying about once the threat becomes more apparent. Oh, yeah, security. <laughs> not not in the uh, Kool-Aid man sense of, oh, yeah, but like the, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this, there's a, a man-sized hole in the wall. We need to do something about this. So I want to go back to that paper I mentioned earlier in Neurosurgical Focus from 2009 where they tried to lay out a framework for approaching the topic of neurosecurity. And so the authors make the point that neurotechnology is becoming more effective. And one of the things that we can draw out from this is that as it becomes more effective, it's going to become more useful. And as it becomes more useful, it's going to become more widespread. And as it uh, becomes more widespread, it'll be more fully integrated into our bodies and our lives. And so there are a lot of current and potential uses of neurotechnology. One thing would be treating brain disorders. Another thing might be making paralyzed limbs usable again or allowing users to control robotic limbs with thoughts alone. Uh, One thing might be remote controlling robots with thoughts. That's a fun one. Mm -hmm. Another one might be enhancing human cognitive capacity. So up until the present, most research into the safety of neurotechnology is focused on making sure the device itself doesn't hurt you when it's functioning the way it's supposed to, right? Safety concerns are about making sure that the intended use of the neurotechnology is safe. And this makes sense because back in 2009, at the time this paper was published, most of these devices were, number one, contained in lab environments. You know, they're they're just not getting out into the wild very much. And number two were self-contained systems, meaning that they had very little limited transaction with the other information systems in the outside world. Back when you had an Apple II and no internet connection, you're probably not going to get a virus, right, unless you're one of the very few unlucky people to get handed an infected floppy disk and you stick it into your disk drive. Of course, once you start connecting your computers to the internet, your security vulnerability goes way up. Uh, And here's a cybersecurity mantra I'd posit for you. The more your device plays outdoors, the more vulnerable it is. Yeah. 
And this means that as a device gets connected to the internet, interacts with a larger number of devices, adds wireless capabilities, all, all those things, there are more ways for it to be compromised by malicious adversaries. And as devices become more useful and more widely adopted, they tend to play outdoors more and more. If, and so what the authors are saying is that if we don't design robust security features in them from the get-go, we could end up with neurotech that works like the internet we just talked about, where it's, it's an ad hoc system of security fixes. It's this constant race between security updates and malicious hackers. And every time the bad guys pull ahead, they have the ability to bring a little taste of doom with them. Except this time the target isn't your computer or even your bank account or your Facebook account. It's your nervous system. And people probably will not find that acceptable. The victims of such accounts, that is, because right. inevitably the trend we see is that there will be somebody who decides that such an attack on an individual is a good idea for whatever kind, whatever reasons they have or just sort of the, the impersonal nature of uh, online victimization. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course there are going to be motives. One of the things the authors point out is just straightforward cruelty. Think of the cruelty, both random and targeted that we've talked about, of those epilepsy strobe attacks. Yeah. I mean, that's just sick, but apparently people think that's okay to do. There are people out there who are willing to inflict injury on others because they think they can get away with it. Uh, but then think about the possible financial and blackmail incentives that would be open to someone who compromised your brain itself. And then think about malicious interference that is self-directed. One example of this might be uh, in a minute, we're going to talk about the idea of deep brain stimulation or mm -hmm. DBS. But there's a possibility, for example, of neurotech users to hack their own devices in an act of harmful self-medication. So in the same way that you might abuse a prescription for painkillers, you could potentially abuse your neurotechnology using it in a way that it's not intended that could be harmful to you in the long run but feels good in the present. Well, or to frame that another way, you you could have a situation where people are optimizing their, their technology in a way that the man does not approve of. Yeah, you could have that or you could have – one example is overclocking computers, right? Mm -hmm. People want to overclock their CPUs. Sometimes you see people messing around with their hardware and it means, you know, I know I can get more power out out of my CPU if I, if I make some adjustments to what it will allow itself to do, but that comes along with risks, right? You could risk overheating your computer or something like that. If people decide they want to do the same thing with their brains, uh, yeah. yeah, then, I mean, basically you could say, I'm going to trade the uh, potential to have more power in my brain with the potential for some risk. Yeah, I mean, people do that every day when they they uh, they look at various pharmaceutical ways to um, potentially augment their brain for the completion of a task or some sort of creative endeavor. And it reminds me, I believe it was uh, Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin who has in some interviews like looked back on past drug use mm -hmm. and and said, well, yeah, that was probably too much, but look at what I got done. <laughs> look <laughs> look at the the work that came out during that time. Uh, I'm not sure if, if, if this is something he said or if this was commentary um, mm -hmm. on his life. But, I mean, you can uh, see someone making the argument with technology to say, yeah, I overclocked my uh, neural augmentations, but look what I got done. Right. Sure did a lot of homework. <laughs> 
Uh, so y- you could say, and I think the authors of this 2009 article say that we're at a similar stage in the evolution of neural engineering as we were at the, it's, the inception of the internet. Neurosecurity is not really much of an issue today, but it could be a huge, massively important concern in the near future. And the consequence of a neurosecurity breach can be a lot worse than a breach of internet security. Instead of protecting the software on somebody's computer, you're protecting a human's ability to think and enjoy good health, right? Yeah, you're getting far beyond, because that's the thing, right? When all these bad things happen, say you suffer even an identity threat, you can always say, well, hey, at least... Nobody was hurt. At, at least I didn't, you know, nobody physically attacked me. But here we see that line uh, somewhat erased. So a few current trends in neurotechnology that are definitely going to up the stakes and increase the risks. One of these things is wireless connectivity. Yeah, the authors in this paper, they recognize that security vulnerabilities do exist in wireless implanted uh, medical devices. Uh, And in past research, they demonstrated that a hacker could certainly compromise the security and privacy of such a device, such as a a 2003 model implanted cardiac defibrillator. Yeah. You see, you could, they they found using homemade low-cost equipment, wirelessly change a patient's therapy therapies, disable those therapies, or induce a life-threatening heart rhythm. And uh, they, and this was a, 2000, again, a 2009 publication. But yeah, they, so uh, things have moved on a bit yeah. since then. But even then at the time, they said, look, the current risk is very low, but such threats have to be taken into account with future designs. Yeah, so there's increasing wireless connectivity of all types of implanted devices, including neural peripherals. But the other thing we need to take into account for increasing security risks is the increasing complexity of these devices. The more a device does, Mm -hmm. the more there is to worry about from a security concern. Yeah, and this is an area where I, to make sense of this, I keep thinking about a chess board and a chess game. Yeah. Uh, As many of you might be aware, like, Chess has a set number of pieces, a, a set uh, playing field, and, uh, and a set rule system. And people have been playing with these limitations for a long time. And in doing right. so, they've kind of figured out, you know, all the basic moves that can take place early in the game. Mm-hmm. And it, it's— The openings. The openings, yeah. And you, it takes a while to get to that point where you're actually in fresh territory, where you're playing a game that has not been played before. Mm-hmm. So it's chess is not like a modern board game where the board game comes out and then they might have a new rule su- supplement or a new expansion. Uh, and, and each time a new expansion comes out, oh, oops, they broke the game a little bit. Or the rules, this rule clashes with this older rule and we need somebody to, to weigh in and tell us uh, you know, how we actually uh, play the game now. Chess doesn't change. Chess remains the same. And... Our, our, our world of interconnected devices does not stay the same. It changes. It is a, it is a modern board game that gets, gets a larger playing field, gets more pieces and more complex rules pretty much every day. Now, I think we should zero in on some, some specific examples mm-hmm. of neurotechnologies. One would be robotic limbs. Now, I think this is a great example of something that has made enormous strides just in the past couple decades. Robotic limbs are not the future. This is the present. Multiple labs and interorganizational projects have already created robotic limbs that can be controlled directly by brain activity, just like the muscles in a natural limb, and these things are getting better all the time. That's right. Uh, Now, to go back in time just a little bit, 
Back in 2013, Bertold Meyer wrote an article for Wired titled, Ethical Questions Are Looming for Prosthetics. Now, Meyer had a, a unique insight in this article because he wears a prosthetic arm himself and has tried out many different models over the years. Uh-huh. So he's not, you know, he's an insider when it comes to prosthetics and the use of high-tech prosthetics. So at the time, he was using an eye limb, which connected to his iPhone, which, of course, was connected to the Internet. Okay. And he wrote, uh, technically, a part of my body has become hackable. And, uh, and he pointed to concerns by crime futurist Mark Goodman, also a Wired writer. And Mark Goodman uh, uh, covered the fact, had previously covered the fact that uh, hackers had developed a Bluetooth device that can cause portable insulin pumps used by certain diabetics to give their uh, wear a lethal dose. Oh, yeah. This is another one of the vulnerabilities of hackable implanted mm-hmm. devices that don't even necessarily connect to the nervous system or the brain. Right. And uh, if anyone out there is a fan of the, the TV show Homeland, uh, there's actually a plot involving uh, an, a, a vice presidential assassination attempt in the show uh, utilizing just such a strategy. I've never watched that show. Is it good? I enjoy I only watched the first two seasons, but I enjoyed it. Uh-huh. So Meyer uh, argues that we, we have to recognize and address such hacking sensitivities before the technology is widely adopted and hacking becomes a, a full-fledged threat, which just is exactly what we've been, we've been saying over right. and over again. So Meyer's on the same page as the authors of this article we were talking about earlier. That they're saying the main thing is we got to get ahead of it. we got to start thinking yeah. about neurosecurity before these threats really become an issue. Now, there are plenty of labs that have been working on robotic limbs, uh, thought-controlled robotic limbs. One more example I wanted to mention, there was a good article in the New York Times in May 2015 about uh, the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, where they've got this robotic arm. It's got 26 joints, and it can curl up to 45 pounds. Is that more than my biological arm can curl, I wonder? (laughs) into an arm wrestling contest with one of these uh, robot arms. I don't know. I feel like we're getting into um, the weight of human hair scenario <laughs> trying to judge this. <laughs> well, anyway, this thing's it's controlled entirely by the brain. And so it is just that you connect this to what your natural neural impulses would be. And you can't. You, you don't have to operate any external controls or machinery. You just control it with your brain. There was also a, a good article I saw in Wired from last year. I think about President Obama just freaking out when he was watching somebody control a prosthetic arm with his brain. Uh, he like couldn't contain his glee. Yeah, I mean it's it's amazing. Like, yeah. the, the, and, and that's the thing. The, the technology has so many wonderful applications. Um, and, and all of these additional threats uh, kind of come second to that, at least when you're you're focusing on the wonder. Yeah, and so there are a couple ways you could say that neural devices would come into limb control. So one of them would be restoring the use of a disabled limb. Like if you have some kind of neurological damage or disease, that means you still have an arm or a leg, but that you can't control it with your brain. One thing a neural device could do is give that control back to you. Another thing would be that you've lost the arm or the limb and that you have a robotic replacement that you can control with your brain. Yeah, these are, these are two possibilities that, that come up uh, time and time again in uh, you know, Wired uh, magazine articles and, and other <laughs> cool, uh, uh, cool you know, forward-facing technological uh, publications. Now, we've mentioned a couple arms, but th- they're prosthetic legs too, right? Yes, I was uh, looking around. I came across Blatchford's Lynx Prosthetic, and this uh, communicates from knee to ankle 
400 times a second. So it's a system in, in which the, the foot and knee of the prosthetic limb work, to, work together to predict how its wear is going to move in response to the position. And this, too, features a Bluetooth connection to a smartphone huh. to help manage uh, this interaction. Yeah, to, like, uh, adjust settings and things yeah. like that. Yeah, so I mean, I guess. Or does it rely on the smartphone's CPU to do its computation? I guess that would be difficult. Um, my understanding is that this was ab- about like tweaking performance. Yeah, okay. So, but it's easy. Th- that's the thing. When you can see a lot of these technologies, perhaps they start with using uh, a wireless connection to tweak performance, but then it becomes more, right? Then it becomes about uh, downloading new firmware. Then it becomes about actually using the comp- computational power of the device or the cloud even to control the prosthetic. All right, so maybe it's time to think about what would be the security concerns of a robotic limb or a neurotechnologically enabled limb. One thing I got to think about is the concept of a ransomware attack. So we've recently seen ransomware attacks all over the world, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're now saying that the North Korean government might be behind... These ransomware attacks that have hit, like, uh, the British NHS and all these other places. As of this recording, I believe there is some speculation that that might be the case, but I, I was reading an expert, uh, uh, an expert who was saying, well, we're still looking at it. So Okay, but the basic concept of a ransomware attack is, you know, I've seen this on relatives' computers before, where you boot oh, up— Oh, yeah, yeah. You, like you, I mean, this is a classic type of attack. You uh-huh. boot up your computer, and there's a message that says, like, from Microsoft antivirus protection or something, uh, your system is not secure. You must pay to renew your antivirus license in order to boot up your system. And they ask for your credit card number. And so they're holding your technology hostage. In that case, they're pretending to be somebody legitimate, but they could just come right out and say, look, I've got all your files. I'm not going to let you into your phone unless you give me 100 bucks." And that was basically how this, this recent WannaCry um, uh, ransom bot attack yeah. worked, right? But imagine if this was applied to neurotechnology that re-enabled you to move your limbs. So let's say you're out hiking with your amazing robotic legs. You've lost control of your legs or you lost your legs in an accident. You've got robotic legs and you're out walking around in the mountains and suddenly they lock in place and refuse to move. And then you get a text message demanding a ransom payment of $500 worth of Bitcoin or your attacker will not unlock your legs. Yeah, what do you do? You you got to at least take a chance that they're going to make good on the promise. Yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing how how sci-fi things can get so quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's really does not seem all that far-fetched to me. No. Another thing might be, how about a confidentiality attack? So that that last type, remember the three categories we mentioned earlier of uh, neurosecurity categories. You want to protect the availability, the confidentiality, and the integrity. That would be an availability attack, right? Mm-hmm. They say you will not be able to use your device unless you pay up. Uh, you could have a confidentiality attack that would be a skimming attack on your robotic arms. Say an attacker gains control of your robotic arms, then uses motion data to infer what you're typing whenever you use your fingers to type a message. Or how about an integrity attack? The attacker literally makes you punch or choke yourself or punch or choke others by taking control of your robotic hands. Well, this reminds me of a a video clip that I actually included in the notes here. I'm not sure if you've seen this. But it was just a gentleman on a, I believe, a French news program Mm -hmm. showing off a prosthetic arm. Mm -hmm. And he activates it and it begins to malfunction. And it just kind of starts 
pounding on the table and then yeah. pounding on, on the man's thigh and he can't get it to turn off. So you can easily imagine where even something it wouldn't have to be as, 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 uh, as precise as making you go karate chop crazy on people around you. But what if it just started making your arm, uh, you know, go into sort of spasms? Yeah, uh, that that could be bad enough, especially I mean, if you were driving a car at right. the time, if you were if you were giving a, a you know, public uh, presentation, uh, there are any number of scenarios where just uh, the, the utter malfunction of the device would be bad enough. Now, I know a lot of you out there are probably thinking like, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't get a, a, a robotic limb like that if there are risks like this. But you're probably not putting yourself really in the frame of mind that it, uh, that somebody who has lost control of a limb or lost a limb would experience. I mean, mm-hmm. imagine not having that ability and having the technological capability to regain it. This is not something that I think people can really be faulted for wanting. No, I mean, uh, I mean that's the thing. Like, is the is the is, the, is if it improves the technology and makes the technology better able to you know let an individual cope with a lost limb, yeah. and then is that that technology becomes the standard? Of course, people are going to adapt it. Yeah, this is a thing people are going to want for good reason, mm-hmm. and it's definitely, especially at, at the beginning, going to seem like the risks are very low, and hopefully they will be. Yeah. So uh, I do want to say here. You know, when it comes to hackable prosthetic limbs, it isn't all black mirror paranoia. Uh, There is a lighter side as well. And this is where the Lego prosthetic arm comes into play, designed by Chicago-based Colombian designer Carlos Arturo Torres. And it's a modular system that allows children to customize their own prosthetics. So this is a lesson in engineering, programming, and a way to help them overcome the social isolation they might feel over their condition. Hmm. So I I just found that to be an interesting little side note. Well, yeah, we already mentioned in a perhaps dangerous or detrimental context the idea of hacking your own neuroprostheses, which that that could certainly be the case. But I can also see hacking your own neuroprostheses to be something that's very, like, fun and adventurous and exciting. Mm -hmm. I guess it would just depend on what the risks and and the dangers were. Oh, man, what if we reached the point to just have a little fun with it? What if a a hacked... Either you hack it or, you know, someone outside hacks your prosthetic arm and it makes a, a hand puppet mm-hmm. and then it's able to talk specifically in the voice. Who is the, the famous hand puppeteer? I don't know. It would do kind of like a, kind of like a, you know, a, a cartoony Spanish accent to the, to, to the talking hand. You know who I'm talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Senor Winces? Is that... I, I don't know. No, I have no idea. Anyway, I, I can't help but imagine like a hacked robotic arm suddenly just <laughs> becoming this little talking fist that's li- that, that, that starts screaming at you. Uh-huh. Yeah. So add that to the list of, of uh, near future concerns. Well, uh, I can think of a good one is that you'd hack your own arm to just make it at random intervals throughout the day, throw up the rock horns. You know? <laughs> oh, and you'd have no warning when it was going to happen. You just oh, say man. like, fair warning to all my friends and family. Every now and then I'm going to rock out. You, yeah. You've got to get the horns. Or every now and then I may just flip you off. It's not because I'm, I don't like you. It's just I, I've been hacked. Sorry. Uh, it becomes a great excuse. Uh, So yeah, there are multiple sides definitely to having systems that are flexible and can be manipulated. I mean, you could see that as a security risk, which it probably is, but you can also see it as an opportunity for people to express themselves and and try new things with their own bodies. Yeah, indeed. Well, on that note, you know, we should take a quick break. 
And when we come back, we will get into some uh, some some other uh, possible areas where neurotechnology could become hacked. All right, we're back. Okay, Robert. One more type of neurotechnology that is highlighted in this original paper on neurosecurity is the concept of deep brain stimulation. Ah, uh, yes. Now, we, I think we've talked about this some in the podcast before, but deep brain stimulation is basically putting electrodes mm-hmm. deep inside the brain to stimulate certain regions with electrical impulses. It, it's, uh, it, in the basic idea is fairly simple. Of course, the implementation is very complex. Yeah, we get into this in our brain-to-brain communication episode, which I'll include a link to on the mm-hmm. landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But yeah, essentially you have sort of the external version. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the God helmet scenario, right? Where you're doing uh, you know, electromagnetic cranial stimulation. Yeah. And then the idea of, of actually putting the, uh, the, 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 impl- the, the devices inside the head, yeah. actually having implants in the brain that are manipulating cognitive function. Yeah, and there, there's all kinds of uh, uses of putting electrodes in the brain. Deep brain stimulation specifically is, is putting them deep down in there mm-hmm. to help with multiple types of chronic medical conditions. Specifically, it's uh, been effective at dealing with Parkinson's disease and and with tremors, what you might see called essential tremor, uh, but also contains uh, uses that have been tried out, such as for treating major depression or for chronic pain. And so, obviously, the better we get at correcting problems that begin in the brain with uh, w- with electrical impulses, that that is a great thing for the people who who suffer from these conditions. But when you're putting the capability to send electrical impulses deep within the brain uh, in the hands of a piece of technology, you want to make really sure that that technology is doing what it's supposed to do. As you can guess, there could be a lot of problems with unwanted electrical stimulation of the brain. Oh, yes. Uh, And one thing, I just want to quote a, a paragraph from the 2009 paper we mentioned, quote, The hacker's strategy does not need to be too sophisticated if he or she only wants to cause harm. It is possible to cause cell death or the formation of meaningless neural pathways by bombarding the brain with random signals. Alternately, a hacker might wirelessly prevent the device from operating as intended. We must also ensure that the deep brain stimulators uh, protect the feelings and emotions of patients from external observation. So you can see there are a lot of avenues here. Also, mm-hmm. deep brain stimulation was one of the things we had in mind when we talked about the idea of, of illicit or dangerous self-use. Like if you are self-administering patterns of electrical impulses that may feel pleasurable to you at the moment but could be harmful to you in the long run. Yeah, and of course, this this is another another area where you can imagine it being hacked for you know on both sides. Yeah, someone saying, "All right, I know this device was just about uh, you know treating a disorder, but I'm I'm going to tinker with it, and now it, it gives me orgasms when I push a button." <laughs> uh, but but then then the reverse of that, of course, is someone actually monkeying with your cognitive performance. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and you can only think as things like this become more complex. Mm-hmm. 
there will be more and more opportunities for dangerous exploits as well. You know, basically, the possibility for dangerous exploits seems to track along with the potential for helping the brain. Right. As we, as we have more power to heal, we have more power to destroy. You see that with any technology, right? You see those parallel tracks of the, the beneficial applications for humanity and then the negative self-destructive ones. Totally. It's, uh, it's nuclear power at the neural level. Yeah, it, it's chemistry, you know. Yeah. The, the same t- advancements that gave us all the beneficial applications of chemistry also produced chemical weapons. So Yeah. Uh, so I want to look at one more potential neurotechnology that could have great rewards and great risks. And so this one is going to be cognitive augmentation. So one commonly discussed example is memory augmentation. This mm-hmm. comes with its own benefits and risks. The risks are fairly obvious. If you have the capability to augment memory, you may also have the capability to degrade, erase, or alter existing memories or to create false memories or impressions uh, and and alter the entire integrity of a person's memory system. But I got another idea. What about computational upgrades, assuming such a thing is ever possible? We, We don't really know if it is, but we'll assume for now that it could be possible to upgrade the brain's ability to, say, do math or use, or have computational reasoning. Okay, just an implant that uh, boosts some sort of cognitive function in your brain. Uh, yeah, yeah. Your point being like either your, your, your handling of mathematics or mm-hmm. your memory, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, Robert, I got a scenario for you. Okay. Somebody offers you a free surgery okay. that they say has a 95% chance of increasing your IQ by 25 points. Would you take it? Hmm. I don't know. This Pretty good, uh, pretty good odds of success. Yeah. You don't have to answer now. I got one to make it a little more obvious. Okay. If, you, if you're a person out there who's listening and you, you'd say, hell no, you know, <laughs> I'm not messing around with my brain. I like my brain the way it is. I'm not going to introduce all these risks. Then consider this. What if everybody else around you's taken this? Yeah. So all of your friends, your coworkers, everybody in your professional circle, all of your professional rivals, they all take the upgrade. This is a this is a big issue in transhumanist thought, you know. Yeah. Who gets to be transhuman? And what does it mean to say no to some sort of transhuman experience such as uh, a you know, a, a surgical implant that yeah. uh, that boosts your cognitive ability? Well, I'm just talking about voluntary willingness. So, mm-hmm. uh, of course the question of who this is available to is a big yeah. question, but it's a different question. Mm-hmm. I am saying let's let's just assume we're in a crazy scenario where it's freely available to everyone. Okay. And the only question is do you want it? Will you voluntarily take it? I'm not sure. You're, you're in the situation where if you're if you're the first person, you'd probably say like, no, I don't think I want that. It's too weird. If you're the last person, you would probably be desperate to catch up, right? Yeah. Would you voluntarily choose to remain at a cognitive deficit to everybody else around you who has upgraded themselves? I mean, that's the thing. People are going to take the risk. People are going to be hungry enough to take the risk. Some people are going to be comfortable enough not to, but for how long? Yeah, this is where we get into a scenario of something that I would call, maybe this isn't the best term for it, but I'm going to try this out. The term is irresistible availability. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to posit that brain-computer interfaces and certain types of neural augmentation, cognitive augmentation, if they're possible, they are going to fall into this category of irresistible availability. So I would say, you know, consumer technology that looks scary at first 
tends to go through several phases. Of course, you've got the lab phase, right? You've got the alpha and beta phase. It's fairly contained, constrained. It's testing with people who are part who are in on the game, basically. Mm-hmm. And then you've got it. You've got a release, and you've got early adopters. These are people who are technologically adventurous, and they start using this new thing. Uh, they tend to like to show off its advantages. They're more willing to accept risks that are you know that haven't been worked out yet. They're willing to get along with the kinks that haven't been solved. Then the intermediate adopters weighed in. And at some point, a new technology that originally seemed scary and weird and unnecessary reaches a tipping point of convenience, advantage, and widespread adoption. And I would say there's definitely a social element to this. It's not just the, the, the true you know, financial or time uh, convenience it provides, but it's the fact that everybody else is doing it. Yeah. And at, at some point, it goes from something that I don't need and that scares me to something I couldn't imagine living without. And you can see this in many uh, in many contexts. Think back to cell phones. Yeah. How cell phones went from a like weird and unnecessary thing that an extravagance. Yeah. Right? Like characters in movies had cell phones, especially in their car. Remember when the you, I still enjoy watching like uh, you know 80s films where there's a supervillain of some sort in a crappy B movie. Yeah. And of course they have that big bulky car phone. You're like, oh, imagine a world. Yeah. In, in which someone makes a phone call from their car. Do you remember when paying for something online with a credit card was this really weird, scary, and unnecessary thing? Oh, yeah. I specifically remember that thing. Like, why would anybody ever use a credit card to pay for something on the internet? That's insane. Yeah, that's... That's what you do. You call an 800 number and you use yeah. a credit card that way. And then think about uh, maybe mobile banking and transactions, ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you just think about this progression from scary and unnecessary to fundamental. It's the progress of irresistible availability. And I very much think that neurotechnology could easily go in the same direction. As, it be, as the advantages become more clear, as the risks sort of get blurry and, and go out of focus because so many people are using it, uh, it, it just starts to look more and more like something that you can't go without. And then once you've tried it, you're in the pool. Yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking back to flying. Like if, if, if flying makes sense on an, an airline, then everything makes sense. Yeah. Like you're clearly defying the will of God by getting in this machine and ascending <laughs> like a bird. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, everything else is on the table, too. Yeah, man, and they, they don't even try to make it pleasant anymore. <laughs> and people still can't stop doing it. Yeah, like they, they don't have to sugarcoat it. Yeah, yeah. you're in a flying death machine. Uh-huh. I'm on board. Well, actually, to speak of death machines, the, of course, the, the classic comparison here is the car, the automobile, right. which is far you know, more potentially deadly than just flying on an airline. Yeah, imagine cars were new and nobody drove them. And they were this brand new invention just now being debuted. And they told you, okay, on average, about 33,000 people a year are going to die in these machines in the United States alone. Do you want one? <laughs> yeah, you would You would say, oh, I don't know, that sounds kind of, kind of dangerous. <laughs> but the thing is, we were born into this world, yeah. right? We were born into the world of the automobile, and so you just take it for granted. You're like, yeah, yeah these are these these are this is the, the the roll of the dice we take every day. So of course it's normal. The convenience creeps in. The widespread adoption makes it look normal mm-hmm. and okay. And so it's irresistible availability. You, it's just ubiquitous, and you can't get around it. Yeah, and even things that are not 
available to everyone just become increasingly normal. Like I, I keep thinking back to uh, to like Time magazine headlines about test tube babies uh, back in say the nineties. Oh yeah, all the know? like original stigma about uh, yeah. IVF. Yeah, and of course that has become that just became increasingly normal, just increasingly every day. Like today, it's just another reproductive option that's on the table. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that was also influenced then by by social social stigma and certain like misogyny oh, and yeah, certain no ideas yeah. about uh, about you know people trying to control what women's bodies are for. Mm-hmm. But yes, there is, uh, yeah, just the technological aspect alone certainly has become more more accepted. Yeah, so it, it seems undeniable that we'll see the same thing occur with these various, you know, the idea of neural implants. Yeah, and this stuff may be coming a lot sooner than we think. So we, we've talked about how there's already deep brain stimulation and robotic limbs. These are already in development. They already, in some cases, work pretty well. Uh, it's just a question of them being deployed more in the wild and becoming more widely available. Uh, but the the question of cognitive augmentation, that's still more of a future concern. We haven't really discovered any strong entryways into that arena of technology yet, but we could be closing that gap really fast is what I'm saying. So how about Neural Lace, Elon Musk? Oh, yeah, the Neural Lace. Uh, I love this idea because, of course, the, 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 the guy who coined the term Neural Lace is uh, sci-fi author Ian M. Banks, one of my personal favorites. Always comes back to the banks here. Yeah. Yeah, in, in his books, uh, there's this, The Culture, which is this uh, uh, anarcho-utopian, uh, far-future society, and everybody in the culture has all these transhumanist uh, adaptations, such as uh, like drug glands, that they can, they can gland various substances to change how they're feeling, and they all have this neural lace that enhances cognitive ability and kind of gives them a, basically they're, they're, they're tied into a vast uh, sea of information that they can call up as they need. So basically the idea is it is a way of robustly connecting the brain to the external information systems of the internet or w- whatever their future version of the internet is. Yeah, it would be like Google Brain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty close to what Musk seems to have in mind. Now, obviously we're not there yet, but we do have prototypes of this sort of technology. It's, it's nowhere near uh, Ian M. Banks level yet. But in March 2017... Elon Musk was in the news promoting this new neurotech startup called Neuralink, which he basically plans to use as the vanguard of the coming neurocyborg movement. And and the idea of the neural lace is really the short version is it's this ultra-fine mesh material that can be injected into the brain case with a needle. So you get the needle inside the skull mm-hmm. and you inject this mesh material over the outside of the brain where it naturally unfurls to cover the outer surface of the cortices. And from here, it melds with the brain and can offer supposedly extremely precise electrical feedback and electrical control of brain activity, what they would call a, quote, direct cortical interface. And supposedly, trial versions of this have been deployed in mice with apparently very few side effects. And so in the short term, this might prove a useful treatment for various neurological disorders, you know, age-associated neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders. But Musk is not shy about the sci-fi stuff. He, <laughs> no, not he, at all. He's, he's into his other motive, which is that ultimately he's interested in cognitive upgrades. He wants cognitive augmentation of the human brain. 
And one of the main reasons he's given publicly is that Musk is one of these people who's concerned about existential risk from artificial intelligence. So we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. We, I think we talked about it in our transhumanist rapture war episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, but maybe we should do a whole episode or episode series on this sometimes because I, I do think the question of the risks posed by artificial intelligence is interesting. And one of the reasons it's interesting is that it's one of these questions where really smart people who really know what they're talking about are totally on both sides of the issue. Mm -hmm. You hear people saying, we need to be worrying about existential risk from AI right now. And other smart people are saying, these people are lunatics. This is not a concern. Right. And I'm not sure which side of the the issue I fall on. Yeah, it kind of depends on whose argument I'm reading. I, yeah. I, kind, of, I, I kind of fall in line with, with, with whoever, whatever the, 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 mo- the last rational argument happens to be <laughs> on the matter. Yeah, I guess I'm there. I, I consider myself highly persuadable on this mm-hmm. topic still. Uh, but anyway, Musk is one of these people who says, look, creating superhuman artificial intelligence is a genuine risk to us. We at the very least risk becoming irrelevant, if not risk being destroyed. And so he thinks that in order to avoid becoming irrelevant or worse in the face of superhuman AI, we've got to be willing to upgrade our brains to keep up with the machines. In other words, the only way to make sure that you don't fall victim to machine intelligence is to merge with it. Yeah, to become it, really. Yeah. Yeah. And in his view, neural lace might be one way to get us there, giving us the power to augment our bio brains with neuro- neurotechnology to become superhuman mind hybrids. So if the if the the AI God is essentially a cat's cradle design, uh-huh. we want to make sure we're the fingers. We want to make yes. sure we're a, 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 a you know an, a, an important aspect of its spiritual body. Yeah, even if we're not its enemy, we also don't want to be just some irrelevant obstacle to whatever its goals are. We want to be thoroughly integrated with it and its motives. Yeah. Yeah, which kind of comes back to Ian and Banks. That's that, that's kind of how he he weaves uh, the humans uh, and the humanoids of the culture into everything. Like they're uh, the minds, the AIs that that ultimately rule everything and are making all the hard decisions. They they see the value in having human operatives. And they also have this it's kind of like like hard a uh, hard part of their programming, like I guess their sort of corporate culture mm-hmm. is that there's something important about human life, yeah, now, if you're still one of those people out there saying, "Okay, I'm just never going to get any kind of neurological implants I, I, by the way, I'm not advising people never get neurological implants. I'm more saying that the people designing these things really need to be thinking super hard about security from day one. Uh, I guess we're way past day one, but from day whatever this is right now. Yeah. But you don't just have to worry about the future of neurological influence from technology if you get an implant. There are other ways to influence the brain with technology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think another area of potential ex, ex, exploit, exploitation would be, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if you had some manner of external fine-tuned electromagnetic cranial stimulation device, right. perhaps one that aids with the treatment of a psychological condition or perhaps even works recreationally, imagine malware or a hacking scheme that turns such brain functioning management on its ear. You know, how fast would you be able to rip the, the thing off and right. then, oh, I can't use it. 
uh, in, anymore. Or, you know, or I'm going to have to go a day. I'm going to have to bring this thing into the shop. How am I going to get across town without my, uh, my, my, my God helmet yeah. to get me there? Now, these external devices, I think, are a little less plausible on this account than implanted devices are because they're less precise, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got transcranial electrical stimulation, also transcranial magnetic stimulation, mm-hmm. these things that, you know, yeah, apply electromagnetic force to the outside of the head, uh, when I've seen experiments with these types of things so far, the results they're able to induce in the brain are very, very blunt and broad, if you know what I mean. They're, yeah. they're not nearly the kinds of minute targeted results that you would get by implanting electrical devices inside the skull or inside the brain. Still, if it keeps me from uh, from auditing my body thetans appropriately, then uh, <laughs> that's going to ruin my week, Joe. Yeah, so <laughs> so on one hand, I do think this is a real concern. And I should also mention that one of the other uh, papers we looked at was a paper by uh, Saul D. Costa, Dale R. Stevens, and Jeremy A. Hansen in, uh, from the International Conference on Human Aspects of Information Security, Privacy, and Trust from 2013. And essentially what they look at is trying to create a broad architecture for an intrusion prevention system for brain-computer interfaces. That's kind of a hard thing to design at this point mm-hmm. because, you know, you don't know exactly what all these systems are going to look like. But the basic system they come up with is that, you know, you'd, you'd have a two-tiered security system where any uh, in internet or external input coming into the brain has to go through what's known as an intrusion prevention system, which is just a system that tries to screen traffic passing into a network or a machine. And if traffic looks suspicious, it says, sorry, you can't go in. And then you'd have to pair that with, and I love this, sort of the brain equivalent of an antivirus program. Uh-huh. Antivirus program looks at what code is executing on this computer right now, what what executive functions are, are happening. And if it sees suspicious activity, it shuts it down. The brain version would have to use some kind of signal processing to look at what's happening in the brain or in the or in the neural device and say, does any of this look suspicious, like something the brain wouldn't normally be doing? And if so, you might have to disconnect the neural device or shut it down. Yeah, and this is an area where I can just imagine us kind of, instead of going just full-fledged face-forward into a thought police scenario, we're kind of backing into one. <laughs> because at, you end up with a situation where, potentially, where uh-huh. you have, where, where human cognition is this byproduct of organic and machine, right? We become increasingly cyborg. It's It becomes... And then, therefore, any kind of uh, intrusive thoughts or even criminal thoughts, it becomes kind of like bad behavior in a dog, right? Mm. Not a wild dog, but a, a, a pet animal. Uh, because whatever, what always happens, like people are saying, oh, well, is, is this because the, the, is this the owner's fault or is this the dog's fault? Uh-huh. And is, is there any way to really distinguish between all of these things because the, the condition of the dog is so manipulated and so changed by its relationship with humans? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, I can see a scenario where in the future people might have, say you've got a deep brain stimulator mm-hmm. in your head or you've just got neural lace or something like that, some kind of neuroperipheral technology that that changes the way your brain works and then you do something that you say, that didn't seem like me. Did the neuroprosthetic make me do it? Let's say I went and robbed a bank. Uh-huh. 
Could I sue the company that made my neuroprosthetics and say, this is totally out of character for me. I don't know why I did that. I never would have robbed a bank normally. And I think what happened is that my neuroprosthetic malfunctioned and it artificially pumped up my aggressiveness and lowered my inhibitions and did all this stuff that temporarily turned me into a bank robber. And that's not my biological brain's fault. Or it could be that you went to the wrong website you clicked on something you you shouldn't have, and that somehow uh, that managed to like follow up the chain to your brain itself and altered your behavior. Oh, God, yeah? I didn't even think about that with neuroprosthetics. So it could be something you click on on the internet or some search you do on Amazon mm-hmm. can now not only follow you around it, showing you ads at different websites, but it can follow you into your brain. Yeah, or maybe they didn't even hack you. Say they hacked uh, an advertisement that you pass, and that advertisement uh, communicates with devices that you have. That uh, uh, you know, so that it can uh, it can figure out what your behavior is, and you know, feed you the right advertisements, maybe in your dreams or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So the main thing, my main point in this episode is that I think that we cannot depend on the consumers opting out as a way to avoid these risks because of this this irresistible availability thing. As these things become more available, become more widespread, and become more useful, people are just not going to be able to resist the urge to use them. And uh, and in some cases, there you know, if you you suffer like an injury or a disability or something, there's no reason you you would you should want to resist them, right? They will give you lost functionality back. Yeah, I mean, unless there's an end to the advancement of technology, yeah, or say there's a Butlerian jihad, yeah. and and people as a, as you know, in mass decide. No, we, we, you know, we're, we're not going to cross this point. Right. And we're going to p- put in place laws that keep us from augmenting ourselves and becoming uh, and thinking like machines. Right. Yeah. So I'm saying you can't depend on the individual consumer or patient to opt out. That That is not something that should be part of the thinking on this. Mm-hmm. It should be that security concerns are absolutely taken into consideration from day whatever this is now. Yeah. Because it's never from day one. It's always going to be like day, uh, you know, 308. Yeah. You got you to be ahead of those brain hackers. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Hopefully we gave everyone some, you know, ace, you know, definitely some, some room for uh, a little paranoia and a little sci-fi wondering for sure. But also just some, some, some real facts mm-hmm. uh, about technology and security and how the, how the, 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 the footfalls tend to go in this trek. And one hopes those uh, footfalls are chosen by one's own free will. Yes, indeed. So, hey, if you want to uh, learn more about this topic, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. We're on all those things. And the landing page for this episode will include some links out to some of the sources we talked about here today. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to give us feedback on this episode or any other or to let us know if you think you would accept a voluntarily opt-in neuro enhancement or if you want to suggest topics for the future or anything like that, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
Thank you.